Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 2, beginning to read with the first verse. In our following of the children of Israel in their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, we have finished the journeyings that are described in the book of Exodus, although they're still in their Exodus and still involved in their journey. We read about the sin in the case of the golden calf and Moses' intercession in this and talked about this last week. And uh, we see that they are still at Mount Sinai and they are in the process of constructing the tabernacle which uh, has been given to them in detail. The pattern for it has been given to them. And also the offerings that they were to offer are described in detail. The different kinds of offerings and the occasions for the offerings. And all of these are of typical significance. They picture in type and symbol gospel truths before There was a gospel to preach before Jesus Christ came and died. They were teaching these people things uh, in something of an elementary way, and we can learn from them different aspects of the great salvation that God has wrought in Christ Jesus. Leviticus is called Leviticus because it deals with these offerings and the uh, rules that govern the priesthood, and the priests were taken from the tribe of Levi. And this dates back to Levi's standing with Moses in connection with this sin of the golden calf. Remember, Moses stood in the midst of the congregation and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And the tribe of Levi gathered themselves to Moses. And he said, Take every man his sword and go throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his father. In other words, you go through and you deal with the leaders of this rebellion against God, be they your own brother or your own father. Some 3,000 died that day. And for this act of loyalty, the tribe of Levi was chosen to this special position of eminence and prominence and honor. In the first chapter of... uh, the book of Leviticus, we have the burnt offering described, the details of this sacrifice that was to be placed on the altar and burnt in its entirety, the whole burnt offering. And uh, then in the second chapter, which we read from, you have what is known as the mincha, M-I-N-C-H-A, or meat offering described. And we're told what it consisted of in the first verse of the second chapter. We read, And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. Now, this is something of a misnomer to us. It's called a meat offering, but actually we see it was made of fine flour. It was meal. And uh, this is a little bit confusing. It was to be fine flour, the best flour. It was to be mixed with oil. It was 
to be offered in any amount, according to the amount that the offerer wished to give. This was a free will offering. He brought it of his own free will. He could bring as much or as little as he wished. A portion of this was taken by the priest and burnt on the altar. It could be baked in a little cake first or something, but was burnt on the altar. And then the remainder was the priest to be his sustenance and his uh, food. That's what it consisted of. What went before it? As we've said, the first chapter described this whole burnt offering, or what is known as the Holocaust. And these were connected. Never was there to be a Holocaust without this meat offering following. Always they were to go together with the whole burnt offering offered first. What was the Holocaust all about? It could be a sheep, a bullock, or if the family was very poor, it could be a pigeon or a dove. This offering was dealt with in the following way. If you look at the first chapter, we'll just follow the uh, turtle dove in verse 14 of the first chapter. If the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons, and the priest shall bring it unto the altar. Here this turtle dove is torn from its nest and brought to the priest. The priest brings it to the altar and wrings off his head and burns it on the altar, and the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And he shall pluck away his crop with the feathers. The bird has all of his feathers removed. And cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord." What is that? Well, that's just another description of what you read about in the last portion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's just another picture of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sin. You remember that John the Baptist pointed to Jesus one day and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He could have said, Behold the turtle dove that you see the priest offer on the altar. When you read that description, then just think of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through. His head, in effect, wrung off. Himself cleaved, but not divided asunder. Burnt with the fire of God's wrath as he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Going through the anguishes, of a damned soul. See that picture of his suffering. That's what it's all about. And the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the foundation of any sinner approaching a holy God. That's got to come first. Before we offer anything else, we bring the offering that God himself provided, his son. 
Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could take away, could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Jesus Christ was God's sacrifice given for you and for me. Treat it in that way, because that's the treatment you and I deserve. When you see that bird plucked of his feathers, think of you, sinner, standing naked before a holy God. What that bird went through was just an iota of what you and I deserve for our sin. And that's from one end of Scripture to the other. But God so loved sinners that he sent his Son to be treated in that manner. And now, having provided a payment for our sin, he can be just and yet justify you, forgive you fully. That's got to be the foundation. You bring him as your offering. That means you put your trust in Christ as your sole hope of approaching a holy God. That's the only foundation. Without the shedding of blood, his blood is no remission of sin. But you don't stop there. Never was the one offered without the other. That's the foundation, but that's not the completion. That's a picture of our legal clearance, our justification, but that's not the whole story of salvation. Salvation must lead on to sanctification, to a change in you and in me where we become holy. A moral change takes place in our lives, not only... Do we bring Jesus Christ and offer him as the one who died for us? But if we are to be accepted, we must bring ourselves and offer ourselves and our substance. This is what's pictured by the meat offering, uh, the meal offering as we described it, the flower there. Uh, This is a bringing of ourselves. Christ died, why? that they which live might not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him. He died to make us holy. He died to change us. And the purpose of his death must not be separated from this foundation here of our forgiveness. The two go together. When it speaks of bringing fine flour, that means we offer ourselves At our best, we don't offer a part of ourselves second best. We offer all that we are and have as we come to him. Uh, It would do no good to offer ourselves if we did not bring Jesus Christ. You're not acceptable. I'm not acceptable. Our best deeds are unacceptable to God apart from being built on the foundation of the death of Jesus Christ. His forgiveness is not based on Christ's death plus our deeds. It's based solely on Christ's death. But it involves bringing of ourselves and surrender to him to live a life of obedience from this point on. And when we come trusting solely in Christ and giving ourselves fully to him, then and then only is a man accepted by God. There's no such thing as being a Christian without giving yourself to God. And there's no such thing as giving yourself and being accepted without bringing Jesus Christ 
as your sole hope of forgiveness. Get that straight. Oh, the folly of dividing those two things. Never were they to be divided. Let's look at this second step of bringing this flower offering, or the meat offering as it's called, in more detail. As we say, it was the fine flower. Like Christ, his meat was to do the will of his Father. He gave himself fully. Oil was to be mixed with it, we are told. Oil refers to the Holy Spirit. There's no true change in our lives apart from the Holy Spirit coming to live within, which happens when we give ourselves and trust Christ. God gives us his Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And that's different from what we are by nature. The Holy Spirit produces the change within. Love, love for God, love for our fellow man, sacrificial love, like the love Christ had, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, that's not weakness, meekness, self-control. These are the things that the Spirit works within. And it's as He works these things that we have the evidence that we have given ourselves. Frankincense was to be mixed. Frankincense was a gum that when it was placed on the fire, gave off a sweet savor. It speaks of prayer and intercession. We pray as we bring ourselves and as we seek to serve the Lord. It must be accompanied by prayer to Him and a devotional spirit. What must not be present was described in the 11th verse of the second chapter, where we were told, No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Leaven is a symbol because of its corrupting influence. It's a piece of uh, <clears throat> putrefied dough, in a sense. And uh, when it's placed within uh, flour, it spreads this uh, gaseous effect throughout and aerates. <clears throat> Uh, this putrefaction is a symbol of the spreading, corrupting influence of evil. We read in the New Testament that, Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As we come, there must be no malice. When you pray, if you have aught against any, forgive that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you, Christ said. We must come without malice, in sincerity, in truth. Uh, we must, as we give ourselves and continue to give ourselves and serve the Lord, there must be the putting away of wickedness and leaven. Again, we are to mix no honey. <clears throat> honey is naturally sweet. It's sweet to our natural taste. Honey is a picture of those things which are sweet to the flesh, such as uh, sensuality, licentiousness, concupiscence, uh, sex deviations, uh, these things which uh, would naturally attract us in our fleshly natures. 
are to be dealt with. We are told that they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections thereof. We are to put away fornication and uncleanliness, uncleanliness, all of this type of thing. We are to mix no honey as we give our offering, give ourselves. One further thing must always be present, we are told in the 13th verse. Every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt, neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering, and with all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Three times in one verse, the offering of salt uh, being mixed with it is mentioned. Salt represents <clears throat> savor, and it represents a preserving effect. It acts as a preservative. It's called the salt of the covenant because it was the custom in ancient times to ratify a covenant with a meal. And there would always be salt. And so salt came to symbolize this idea of a covenant being ratified. God has made a covenant God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit covenanted together for our salvation before the world began. This is a perpetual covenant, a lasting covenant, an everlasting covenant. We read in Hebrews that uh, through the blood of the everlasting covenant we've been saved. That speaks of the covenant between God the Father and Christ the Son, that Christ would come and die for us and the Father would then forgive uh, all who believed in him. It also speaks of the covenant that we have once we receive Jesus Christ. We enter into a covenant relation whereby God promises to forgive our sins and that we are his forever, an everlasting covenant. You read about uh, such <clears throat> everlasting aspects in connection with the covenants that God makes over in Second Chronicles. Chapter 13, Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons, by a covenant of salt, given forever? And so it's called a covenant of salt. This <clears throat> idea of salt is brought over into the New Testament and directly related to us and our situation in the uh, fifth chapter of Matthew in the 13th verse, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, immediately following the Beatitudes. We read there <clears throat> this verse in verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is therefore good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. You have there our situation. Ye are the salt of the earth. It's a description of our function. We're to function in the world like salt functions in meat. It's a description also of what the world is like. The world is like putrefying meat. It has a corruptive element. It's a fallen world. Sin is present. There's always this tendency to moral corruption spreading throughout unredeemed mankind. Christians are to be like salt in the midst of that situation. They act as a preservative. An antiseptic, they keep this moral corruption from spreading. Real Christians have that effect. This is our function in life. You can see it function 
if you're a real Christian, you've had the experience of walking up to a group of people who were uh, discussing lewd things. And as soon as you entered, the conversation quieted down and changed. Why? Your presence acted as a preservative against the spread of corruption in that situation. That's just a little feel of what it means here. If you haven't had that experience, I wonder if you're a Christian. A real Christian, he's known. He carries a fragrance with him everywhere he goes, and men respect it, or they may speak against him. But it acts as a preservative. They're ashamed of their evil ways around him. I think of an individual in our church who moved to a section of uh, the city where we didn't have uh, any people living much, really. He hadn't been there very long before there began to be an influence spreading out from his home. Began to make a difference in that whole neighborhood. It became a topic of conversation. Groups began to gather in his home. Lives were changed. The whole atmosphere of that section of the city was changed. We've heard uh, the testimony of Chuck Farmer. God called him to work in a section of the city that had the highest juvenile delinquency rate of any section in our city. As he goes and establishes a little work there with a little house and a few boys working with him. Juvenile delinquency rate in that area dropped 50% within one year. He hadn't won 50% of the boys to the Lord. Oh, no. It's just that those who were won began to be this salty preservative, rolling back the corruption, keeping it from spreading. This is our function in the world. It also provides savor. In other words, salt salt prevents meat from being insipid, tasteless, unenjoyable. Christianity keeps life from being insipid. You know, the man who is not a Christian, life just becomes tasteless, doesn't it? And what does he have to do to make it tasty? Well, he has to keep himself drugged in some way. Why all the craze for pleasure? Because life has no meaning. It's tasteless apart from Jesus Christ. They try in various ways to make it meaningful. But nothing gives any real meaning to life except the salt of Christianity. A Christian doesn't need to be on a craze for pleasure. Life's exciting to him. He's got salt in his life. There's a danger, though. That's a description, but you notice the danger. He says... If the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Salt can lose its savor. Uh, When Bishop Philae was with us and uh, spoke of the things that were common everyday facts in India where he grew up, he said that in every home there'd be a jar of salt. Just a big uh, jar sitting by the door. And uh, this earthenware jar, as it sat there, filled with salt, uh, was subject to the washing that the floor underwent, as the floor was mopped, and that the salt in the bottom of this jar, after a while, would lose its savor. And when they got down to that, they just had to throw it out. They didn't throw it in the backyard because... 
it had a negative effect on vegetation, and they would throw it out in the street. Salt can lose its savor. It's good for nothing. It cannot recover its savor once lost, and uh, it's trodden underfoot. That's a warning to you and to me. Uh, the seriousness of this is brought out in any number of passages of Scripture. I challenge you to sometime go through the New Testament and to read the passages that speak of the danger of starting out and turning back in the Christian life. I realize that those are Methodist verses. I realize that as Presbyterians we have to be careful about reading Methodist verses. Uh, but read them sometime just once. They are tremendous and they are terrifying. If a man wants taste of the Holy Ghost and the powers of the world to come and then turns back, says Hebrews 6, he cannot be renewed again unto repentance. Uh, Paul speaks of the man who makes shipwreck of his faith, not holding a good conscience. Uh, over and over, Peter warns about those who, having once escaped the lust that is in the world, then go back like a sow goes back to its wallowing or a dog to its vomit. And the terrible state, their last estate, is worse than their first. A man who hears of Christ and begins to follow and turns back is in far worse shape than the man who never began to follow. Nothing more dangerous in this world. The passage over in the ninth chapter of Mark, which speaks of sacrifices being salted with fire. In verse 49, Every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. That's an allusion to this passage in Leviticus. Every sacrifice must be salted with salt. But how is it being used there? J.A. Alexander, the famous Princeton theologian, in his classic commentary on the book of Mark, says this, Our Lord had six times in the previous context spoken of eternal torments as unquenchable fire, where he said it's better to enter into life uh, Halt and blind than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Six times he'd made statements like that in this ninth chapter of Mark. Unquenchable fire from which no man could escape without self-denial and the mortification of sin. Cut off your right hand, pluck out your right eye, said Christ. Whatever this thing is, deal with it ruthlessly. It's causing you to sin. The immediately preceding verse concludes with this solemn repetition of that fearful saying, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. That is, their sufferings are endless and unceasing. But how can the subject of such sufferings escape annihilation? Why doesn't he just burn up in fire? By being kept in existence for the very purpose of enduring them. This awful fact he clothes in a figurative form derived from the sacrificial ritual of Moses 
Every victim must be rubbed with salt, the symbol of incorruption and preservation. So these victims, sinners in hell, shall be salted, not with salt, but with fire. The divine wrath that consumes them will preserve them from annihilation, not from suffering, but for suffering. The essential idea of the figure, he says, is preservation from destruction or continued existence. And just as we might say that the lost sinner will be saved from annihilation, although not from ruin, he says this is the correct interpretation here. That's a terrible thought, and yet it's eminently biblical. How dangerous it is to lose our saltiness. The solution in that same chapter in Mark 9, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. In other words, don't have God have to, from outside, preserve you for eternal, ongoing destruction. But have within yourselves a principle, a quality of life that will preserve you forever with him, in service to him, that will preserve you from the course of life that will lead to eternal destruction. Have salt within yourself, in your quality of life. That is only obtainable through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us when we commit our lives in trust and in surrender to Jesus Christ. In that passage in Matthew 5.13, when he was talking about uh, we are the salt of the earth, just before you've got the Beatitudes, which speak of blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. As those qualities are in my life, I am salty. Only through Christ can those qualities be in your life. That means that we've got to wholeheartedly and continually give ourselves to him. You know, sometimes people give themselves partially to the Lord. It happens all the time. That's like taking a partial dose of penicillin. The man who discovered penicillin, Alexander Fleming, a Scotchman, warned us of the great danger in permitting penicillin to be taken in half doses. The danger of the underdose was that it would permit the infecting microbes to survive and build up an immunity to the penicillin so that later on, a disease that could have been cured early in the game by an adequate dose. Later on, the greatest dose of penicillin, immense amounts of it, wouldn't affect. An immunity had been built up. So it is with a person who partially gives himself to Jesus Christ. You just build up an immunity. And later on, no matter what kind of dealings God has with you, how he may urge this thing upon you by the strivings of his spirit. You've built up an immunity. Your heart is hard. It used to puzzle me 
why it would be that some men would come to church year after year after year. And maybe they were sort of half-hearted to begin with, and they would come every Sunday. And I would think, soon, soon this man will surrender his life to Christ. But it went on year after year after year. I understand that now. He built up an immunity by taking half doses, only letting a certain amount seep in. I talked recently to a man whose son was in trouble, deep trouble. He said, what can I do? I said, it's a spiritual problem. It's got a spiritual solution. He said, I take him to church every Sunday. I go with him. I don't drink. I don't smoke. What more can I do? I set him a good example. I didn't know what to say. And finally, I told him about my life. I said, well, I, I used to go to church. I was a minister. But I never had really surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and put my trust in him alone as my Savior. And until I did that, I didn't have salt within myself. And I detailed how I had surrendered my life to Christ and how I counted the cost when I did it. And he listened. And I said, now, does that ring any bells? He said, oh, you, you're asking me to do too much. That's a big step. I can't do that. Half doses of Christ will do you no good. Wholehearted giving of yourself and trusting in Him will give you salt in yourself. And then continued wholehearted yielding. Seek this. With all you're getting, get salt within yourself. Get a principle that will preserve you from, not in, everlasting destruction. Get salt within yourself that will give you that quality of life that will change the world around you. Seek it. Preserve it. Use the means of growth. Deal ruthlessly with that right hand or that right eye. Don't mix leaven. Don't mix honey with the offering of yourself as you give yourself to God daily. Deal ruthlessly with that thing, no matter how sweet it may be or how precious. Preserve it. Christianity is, is not like a, a sculptor working on his art and then he walks away and it remains just as he left it. It's like rolling a stone up a hill. And the minute the power is removed, it rolls right back down. You must continue to walk in the Spirit. You must continue to yield yourself to God. Preserve that salt through His power and then dispense it to others. Spread it abroad. Tell others about Jesus Christ. What does this old world need more than anything else in this world? One thing, salty Christians. That's the only hope this world has. Salty Christians. What about you? Mixing leaven, mixing honey. Somebody in your heart you're unwilling to forgive. I never go into a church to hold a revival service without the pastor telling me of this family and that family and this person and that person who's got bitterness towards someone else in their heart. How about you? Yield it. Surrender it. Or your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Have you ever come and made that initial surrender, brought that holocaust, surrendered yourself, brought your offering? How about doing it right now, today, as we bow our heads in prayer? If you've never really committed your life to Christ, right now, do it.
Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that right now there would be many who would surrender their lives to you, that in their heart they would just simply say and mean this prayer that I now pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I bring you as my offering. I trust you in your death for my salvation. I bring myself and yield myself fully to you as Lord of me. Amen.